your Bibles, um, we'll get started. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, and we've been going through a series on the book of Revelation, and as a reminder, this is a revelation that's meant to be understood. There's some different imagery in this book, and we are about to begin the phase of the book when um, the imagery gets even more wild and when the imagery is more vivid and vibrant and different than what we would expect. And there's a lot of symbolism in these passages, but let's remember at the very beginning, this is a revelation, meaning a disclosure. This is meant for us to see and to see more clearly, not to make it veiled, but to see more clearly Jesus and what he's doing and what he's about in the world and, and see the future of things, see where he is taking his people and where he is taking all things. And so this is a disclosure of Jesus and God's purposes and plans through Jesus. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. It's a longer passage. We normally would stand, but we're not going to do that today because I don't want to make you stand for that long. But listen to this picture, this, this vision that the Apostle John is is given of the Lamb. Revelation 6, this is God's holy inspired word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse, and its, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked. And behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones 
and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and confess that my understanding is small, our understanding is small. But Lord, thank you that you and your understanding are great. That you desire to impart your wisdom to us through this passage. You desire to make things clear for us through this passage. You desire to speak to us, to give us your instruction, to give us your hope for that we might hear and keep these words. So Father, I ask that you would use my feeble words to speak your powerful words. God, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, that you would open up our ears, Lord, that these things would not be familiar to us, nor would they be confusing, but Lord, we pray for your clarity, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we might respond and keep your word. God, these things are only possible by your spirit, but thank you that you've given us your spirit. And so we ask for more of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love that the Bible answers the most important questions that we have. Now, we don't always know what those most important questions are, but it it answers the most important questions that humans have. You know, as you're coming here today, think about the questions that you have. What questions do you have? What, what, do, you, what do you wonder about? Do you ever, you ever wonder about the future? You ever wonder what's coming next? You ever wonder what about your future? What about the future of the world? You ever look around you and you see the, the shakeup that's going on in the world around you? You look around, you see governments, you see persecution happening that Christians were murdered on Easter Sunday, and you wonder what's happening? Where's this all going? What's behind all this? What's the meaning of this? What's the point of all of this? You ever wonder those things? You ever wonder when Jesus will return? There's a story in the Gospels, and the disciples are with Jesus, and they're just hanging out. And I love it because they're normal people, and they're walking with Jesus in Matthew 24, and they are walking along with him, and they're apparently right outside the temple grounds. These are fishermen from Galilee and from other places, and so um, they're not from Jerusalem. So when they're in the city of Jerusalem, it's kind of like when we go and visit Washington, D.C., and we see the great architecture around, and maybe you've seen it before or heard about it, but when you see it in person, you're like, wow, this is really cool, and there's, there's some ornate details carved into the sides of buildings and the like, and so the apostles, the disciples, they are walking through Jerusalem, and they look up and they see the temple, and it's beautiful. It's gilded, and it's, and it's great carvings and, and all kinds of ornate things. There's meaning to the building itself. And so they look up, and they're walking along with Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, look at these buildings. Isn't this really cool? And they're impressed with God's kingdom here on earth to some degree. And, and the disciples were kind of looking up, and they were in awe. And then Jesus, though, he says... He said something that was a little surprising. When they're, they're looking at architecture, so if you're walking through Washington, D.C., and you're looking at the architecture, you're like, isn't that really cool? That's, that's really great. And boy, I like how the Lincoln Memorial, they got the carving just right. And, and then, you know, imagine that Jesus is like, well, you see these things? None of these things will be standing. That's what his disciples 
heard from Jesus was, you know what, this, is, this might be impressive to you, but you know what, I'm going to undo all of this. I'm going to undo even the temple that I commissioned. I'm going to undo it all. Not even one stone will stand on another. And they're all going to be thrown down. And then that made his disciples curious. Wouldn't you have been curious if you were walking with Jesus? And he says, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to dismantle all of this. Not one stone is going to be on top of another. You might have been like, what? Uh, hang on, like, when, when is that going to happen? What's that? What's that again? And so the disciples, they privately take Jesus aside later, and they were like, Jesus, well, tell us when all of these things are going to happen, and, and when will the end of the ages be? When will your coming be? When are you going to come and establish your kingdom? What would that look like, and when exactly is going to happen? And you know what? Those are some of the questions that we might have. We might wonder things. As we approach the book of Revelation, you might be thinking, okay, when exactly is this going to happen? And if you ever have gone through the book of Revelation and read books on Revelation, Often, the focus is, is actually a little off. The focus is on, more on what's the exact timing. What's this going to be like? And, and who are these horsemen specifically? And, and what are these different epochs and times? And what do these people represent? And, and we, we, we fail to see that, that there is a point behind all of this, that there is imagery and symbolism that's meant to communicate a message. And sometimes we miss the message. So Jesus, he answers the disciples and he says, you know, the real secret is not the one you're asking. The real answer to the question is not a question you're asking. He says, I want you to see there's a point for all these things. He, he does give an answer to them in Matthew 24. And we're going to look at that in a minute. Well, not a few minutes at the end. So about 45, right? So um, he, he gives an answer to them in Matthew 24 and he explains some of what's going to happen in, the, in, the, in that period between when he is no longer with him, and then when he returns. But the reason why he tells them those things, there is a point to it. It's not so that they'll be hung up on those details and try to figure those things out. In Matthew 24, in verse 42, towards the end, after he's already explained to them what's going to happen, and actually, that mirrors our text to some degree. Our text, to some degree, is a mirroring of Jesus' answer in Matthew 24, what some people call the Olivet Discourse, where he is explaining the end times to them. And so our text is actually an unpacking of that to some degree. But, but Jesus, he says, you know, you're asking when all these things specifically and these details will happen, but you're missing the point. He says the point is for something to transpire in you when you hear about these things. And so in Matthew 24, 42, he says, Therefore, all these things are going to happen, and here's what it's going to look like, very similar to what we just read in Revelation 6. And he says, Therefore, because of all these things, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. You're not going to be able to pinpoint it. So don't be anxious about that, but the point of it is to stay awake. And then in verse 44, he says, um, reiterating the same point he just made, not only stay awake, he says it in a different way. He says, Therefore, you must be ready. What's the point of us looking at end times? What's the point of us understanding when these things will happen? And there's nothing wrong for us understanding the times to some degree, knowing that we won't know the exact time. But he gives the point, stay awake. And then Matthew 24, 44, he says, be ready. Why? Because the Son of Man is coming. The Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. And then he says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whose master is set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing, serving and being faithful when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he, he, to, he will set him over all his possessions. There is a point whenever we study Revelation. And it's not meant to satisfy mere curiosity. It's not meant so that we can have a timeline and charts and, and write in dates and figure out which world leaders are when. It's meant for us to hear it 
And for us to have a response, just kind of like what Jesus told them in Matthew 24. He wanted them to see some things. They shouldn't be surprised. He told them in Matthew 24, we see again in Revelation 7, he doesn't want his people to be surprised when things aren't easy. One of these things that happening, the point of these things happening is that people might turn to God and repent and be ready and stay awake, to be wise, to be faithful. You know, even after his resurrection, though, the disciples still wanted to know. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, then he dies, they're distraught, he's resurrected, he's proved that he is Lord over all things, so they can really trust him, but yet, what's the last question that they asked Jesus? What's the last question they asked Jesus? It's in Acts, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, the last, the last question that they ask him is, Lord, when? <laughs> I can relate to that, I want to know when. You ever, you ever want to know when in your life? They say, when, when, when is this all going to happen? Will, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what they really were asking is, hey, when do we get to rule? <laughs> will, you, will you restore the kingdom to Israel so that we can take our place and we can begin to rule? And Jesus answers them. He says, look, it's not for you to know the exact time and the season. So that's instructive for us as we approach Revelation. That's, that's not for us to know the exact time and season, and we, we shouldn't get hung up on trying to figure that out. But he says, the last thing Jesus said, it's not for you to know the exact time or season. The Father is fixed by his authority. But then he says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. So it's not for you to know what's on the scroll and when the times are that God is fixed. What's on the scroll that we are seeing that Jesus is unwrapping and unsealing. But the point of these disclosures is that he says in Acts 1.8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. It's not for us to try to figure out these things exactly. Don't get hung up doing that. But in the meanwhile, we can be sure the Father's going to give us His Spirit. He's going to enable us to apply these things, to carry these things out, and in light of His disclosures, to be His witnesses. You know, this passage, it's meant to be heard and kept by real churches in real places. This, all of Revelation is meant to be kept by real churches in real places. Don't somehow think, oh, these are just weird. I'm, not, I'm just going like, to check out here because I don't really get it, what all these horses and all these things are. And you know what? It's a little freaky and it's a little scary at times if you're honest with yourself. It can be a little scary. You know, in the first place, you take people who don't know God or don't know Jesus or maybe you take a skeptical coworker. you're not likely to open up Revelation 6 and say, hey, let me show you this. It's really cool, these horses and stuff. They'll be like, what? So you need to ask some questions of the passage here. And so really, we're just going to answer three different questions from this passage. We're going to answer three different questions from the passage, and they're, they're relatively simple questions, and if we approach them from a straightforward way, I think we'll see answers that will actually help us hear and keep this. And so the first question we want to, we want to answer is, what are we seeing? Because at first blush, if you get caught up in all little details, it might be difficult to see. And you're like a horse, and then a rider, and then one different colors, and what's up with that? And, and, and then it can be difficult, but... Let's take a step back and say, okay, what is it that we're seeing here? What, what is the point? There is imagery and symbolism that God uses to communicate things, and he is a master at that. You know, God, he creates metaphors. He creates symbols to communicate to us. He does that with himself. He refers to himself as the great shepherd, the great I am, the way, the truth, the life. He uses symbols and metaphors, and we see that really here too. 
So what are we seeing? I, we play this game together, a family fun game, and there's different things you're supposed to do and different aspects. And one of this is these cards that you pull out of the, the family fun game. And so you pull these little cards out, and you have, I think, it's 60 seconds for your team to try to figure out what these four pictures have in common and what they are. But the problem is these pictures are all zoomed in really close. You ever, you ever seen those kind of pictures? They're zoomed in really, really, really close. And you can't figure out what they are because it, you don't have the context for it. And, and you're looking at the details, and it doesn't seem to make sense. But then if you like kind of squint or you take a step back and you think, okay, what would that look like? Or if you have an idea, the first clue, the first one, you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's a piece of paper, and that's an eraser, or that's a pencil, and you can see there's a theme there. And it's kind of like that with this text. You have to, instead of getting hung up on the little details, we're not meant to do that with Revelation, to get hung up on these little details and stare at those, uh, the images, the little pictures. We're, we're meant to take a step back and see what's the, what's the theme here, what he's, what's being trying to be communicated here. Now, in order to do that, we need a little context. Last week... Aaron served us well by preaching through the next passage in the book of James. Um, so we want a little background going back to the last few weeks beforehand. Two weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 4, and in Revelation 4, we see this glorious picture of God on his throne. And there's, there's this wonderful picture of these beautiful colors and, and this majesty. And we see that worthy is the one on the throne. In chapter 5, we see that he's holding a, a scroll. And that scroll is held in God's right hands. And it's meant to represent all of his plans, all of his purposes throughout all of history. And then John weeps because he says, an angel asks, who's worthy to take this scroll to open up God's plans, to carry out his plans and purposes, and no one comes forth. And there are some amazingly powerful cherubim, seraphim, angels, elders, all depicted in chapter 5, and none of them are worthy. And then this angel says, well, don't worry, the lion has conquered. And John looks, and it's not a lion, it's, it's a lamb. The lion is a lamb, and it's, it's a lamb that's standing like he'd been slain, and this lamb, who is Jesus, he goes up to God, and he, he has the authority to take the scroll from God's hand. And he takes the scroll from God's hand, and what we now see is a culmination of his worthiness to open the scroll. So in Revelation 5, 9, he says, that all the angels in heaven said, worthy are you to take a scroll and open a seal's wife, where you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And all the angels shout worship in response. And now the lamb in this passage is taking up his authority, and he's breaking open each of these seals. Now, seals are on a scroll. The scroll represents God's plans and his purposes. But So these are are precursors to the plans and purposes of God being fulfilled and carried out. And so these are preliminary judgments that we're seeing, at least in the first four. And these, these four horsemen kind of grouped together, preliminary judgments. And then we see five, our, our gaze is kind of taken up to heaven to see what's going on there with, with the martyrs. And then we see verse 6, the beginning of the end. And as you go through, as we're going through Revelation, a little kind of a a roadmap as we're looking ahead, Revelation will repeat itself to some degree. There's, there's three cycles of seven that you will see, and then within each one of those, there's cycles of seven as well. Um, and, and what we'll see is there's these seven seals and these passages, and the seventh seal isn't finally broken until Revelation chapter 8. And then after that, there will be seven trumpets. And then after that, there'll be seven bowls. And each of them highlights different things. I was listening to, I think it's, 
I think it's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, that it begins, dun-dun-dun-dun. Everybody know that one? Sorry, I'm not a, dun-dun-dun-dun. And it begins that way. And it's a really powerful beginning, dun-dun-dun-dun. And then all throughout the symphony, there's different pieces of that are highlighted and different instruments are brought in. And it's kind of recapitulation all throughout the song. It kind of goes back to this theme and then kind of goes back again and goes back again. And new pieces are introduced and, and new patterns and, and new portions of music are kind of put in. And then kind of culminates at the end with the same theme again. And that's kind of what we see here. It's, it's like a symphony with different variants coming in all through Revelation. So we see these seven seals as different portions of the symphony being played. And then we see the seven bowls. And so there's some recapitulation. There's not chronological. So if you're trying to figure out, okay, so the seven seals happen, then happen, this happens, then that happens. That's not, how, that's not how the Jewish mind would have worked. That's not how apocalyptic literature would have worked. This is not chronological. It's not for us to try to map out the timeline. It's also not meant for us to add it all up. It's not mathematical, but these are different ways for us to see different aspects of what God is going to do to bring about the judgment that he has. What's God going to do to bring about the end times in the very end? And typically with each of these three cycles, we're going to see the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The first four are generally grouped, and they're generally about things here on earth. And then in the last three are generally about things on heaven, and the very last one of those three is the very end. And so we see that with each one of these different cycles. In the end of this one, the sixth seal, it shows how the tables have been turned and those who persecuted the saints in fear before the wrath of the Lamb. But at the beginning, it opens up with these, this imagery of, you know, what are we seeing here? We see four horsemen. Now, we've, we've all heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and that's where this comes from. But these, it, it, it's kind of, if we think of the apocalypse being distant, that's not necessarily what we're seeing. But the apocalypse being the revelation or the unfolding, that is what we're seeing is an unfolding. But it's not distant necessarily. He says of the different horsemen, we see the very first one of these horsemen. Each is on a different color. And if you have read the Old Testament, they're like the chariot horses in Zechariah's vision. And these chariot horses go to the different four corners of the earth and they, they bring judgment. They're sent down to earth from heaven. And that's what we kind of see here. Each of these riders summoned by one of the four living creatures in response to the lamb, opening up each of the first four seals of the scroll of God. And this is the lamb carrying it out. Each is a picture of the authority of Jesus being passed down to a creature, calling out judgment. Judgment's then being carried out, and the martyrs in verse 9 to 11, they cry out for God's judgment and his vengeance, and then it's carried out all the way until chapter 8 when the seventh seal is opened and then all things kind of come to the end, and then you're going to see that recapitulation again. And look in verse 2, it says, the first horse was bright white. The first horse was bright white. What, why is it telling us this thing? Well, white would symbolize, as we saw before, a couple different things, but Often, white would be symbolic of victory. And so, like in that, prior to this time, they would have been familiar with the idea of, of how Caesar, he came back to Rome in victory, and the Roman Senate, they gave him permission to ride in a chariot, and they commissioned white horses to lead the chariot, symbolic of victory. And so, we're conquering. And so, this white horse, it's symbolic of conquering, and he's got a bow, this rider has a bow in his hand, and that, 
as symbolizes warfare. And especially in Asia, where this was called Asia back then, and they would have been familiar with a group of, of riders, people on, on horseback, that would have fought with a bow. And somewhere around 62, there was the Parthians that came and they conquered that area and fought against the Romans. And so they would have been familiar with this idea of people on a horseback. What does this mean? It means war. And so really, you could just say this forced horseman is symbolic of conquering and war. And, and then there's a progression here that we're seeing. It goes from war and the rulers of this world... So God is opening this seal, Jesus is opening the seal, and he, he allows war to take place on the earth. And then after war, what happens? You see the second horse. And then he says, I heard, look in verse 3, this second creature says, come, and out came another horse, bright red, like a bright fire. And he was given a sword, symbolizing this, this authority to kill. And then look how he takes this authority to kill. Look down your Bible in verse 4. He says its rider is permitted to take peace from the earth. And so what you have is a progression of this horse of war to, to bloodshed or civil war, really. He was, he was taking peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, meaning in the same groups would slay each other, would kill each other. And that's a normal progression. When you have war, often you have a destabilization and a loss of centralized power, and so you can actually have civil wars and things like that to happen. So you have wars and rumors of wars and civil wars, and they would have been familiar with this historically when Alexander the Great, he, he conquered much of the known world at the time, but on his death, his four generals, they split it up into kind of four different portions of the empire, and they, they, they warred within each other for about 200 years. So conquest leads to battle and bloodshed and civil war. And then look down at verse 5. He opens the third seal. And he says, he heard the third living creature say, come. And he looks and he beholds a black horse. And the black horse, he's got a scale. And scales were typically used to weigh out grain. They were used to measure things out. And you'd only be measuring things out like that if things were scarce. And so scales, they were used to settle the weight and the price of goods that were traded. And he's... We can see that this black horse probably symbolizes famine that follows conquest and war. Look in verse 6. We see why this is probably famine. He says, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Wheat was a very common grain that they would have used to, to make bread. Three quarts of barley. Barley would have been not as healthy as wheat, but that's what poor people would have eaten, would have been barley. And a whole family probably would... You know, a very small family of two or three people probably would subsist over three quarts of barley. And so you see this, this voice coming from God, and God is declaring to this horseman. So you've had the horseman of war, and you've had a horseman of bloodshed, civil war. Now you have a horseman of famine, and they were given authority to make food scarce and expensive. So it's likely this is creating food shortages. And if you think about it, back then, a, a denarius was a day's wage. So you think about how much you make in a day. Take your entire day's wage every day and think, oh, okay, so now imagine if you spent all that you made just to barely eat. And not to eat lots of healthy things. Because I, I like to eat meat. I don't know about anybody else here. I, I know we have people who are vegetarian, and, and I respect you for that. But I never want to be that because um, I just like meat too much. 
but I respect it. It takes discipline, but, but you couldn't afford even fruits and beans and healthy things, and they, they could just afford bread and barley with a whole day's wage. And so what he's talking about is famine, because normally bread would have cost or wheat would have cost about an eighth of a day's wage. So imagine that you come home and your entire paycheck, you have to use your whole paycheck for the month just barely to make, buy food to exist. So what does that mean? You, know, you couldn't pay your bills, right? You, couldn't, you wouldn't be able to pay off your car or your camel or whatever other bills you had. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to pay for things because you, would just, you could barely subsist. And you wouldn't have well-rounded diet. There'd be constraints, though. So this is famine, but not starvation. The end's not yet. And then we look in verse 7. He says, They opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. So what are we seeing so far? We're seeing war. We're seeing bloodshed, civil war. We're seeing famine. And then the fourth thing that we're seeing here is a, a pale horse. And the, the color there is actually kind of this palish, greenish color. And I think it's meant to represent the color of a corpse. And so we see this kind of corpse color, this really gross, sickly colored horse. And its rider's name is frightening. Its rider's name is death. So this is vivid imagery. And so you see death is spreading. It's kind of a culmination of all the other horses beforehand. And you see following behind death and this very vivid imagery, death is riding a horse. So we're not meant to think of these things literally, but but God has given different authorities, different judgments to come on the earth. What will it look like in this interim between when Jesus is ascended and when Jesus returns? Well, you're going to see war. You're going to see rumors of war. You're going to see civil war. You're going to see famines. You're going to, you're going to see death. And following behind death is riding this horse, following behind and, and, and walking along is kind of Hades, hell, collecting up all that death kills. And then it says something that seems shocking. It says they're given authority over a fourth of the earth. And if you look in, in verse 8, look down your Bibles, it, gives, it kind of gives a summary, really, of the following three horses. And so this is the embodiment. All of these four horses together it says to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts. And so there's different ways that you see God's judgments coming, and we shouldn't be surprised when all these different things happen. So what are we seeing? We're seeing a continued escalation of judgment. These horsemen not only killing through war and civil war, but through famine and starvation and pestilence and disease and wild beasts. And it cultivates, I mean, it culminates with this, this picture of rampant death and dying. It's, it's kind, of, kind of gross, right? This is not meant to be a pretty picture. These are meant to show us the stark reality. What we see is the stark reality of the judgment of God as he allows human depravity to be carried out on the earth, as he gives people over to depravity of war, as he gives leaders over to, to want to conquest, the natural result is bloodshed. He gives people over to being given to their own desires, and you see civil war, and there's famine as a result, and then there's pestilence and disease, and all these evil things happen as he kind of unleashes humanity, unleashes these horsemen. And these four seals are about what happens on the earth. But then our gaze is diverted back to heaven, which really brings us to the next question, when will these things happen? So we want to know what these things are. These are God's judgments being carried out, and, and they're not really foreign to us, these ideas of war and civil war and famine. They're happening all over the place. This idea of God's judgment being carried out in different ways. But we want to know, when is this going to happen? 
right? Don't, don't you want to know that? <laughs> okay, when is this going to happen? When exactly? Well, there's a little hint at it. Look down your Bible at verse 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, he says, I saw under the altar all the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. When Jesus opens the fifth seal, these those whose lives were taken from them because they're preaching of God's word and they're Christian witness, they're crying out. Look in verse 10, it says, They ask, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Meaning, when? When will you finally judge? When will all these things take place? When is the end going to come? When will you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And that, that word for cry out there, it's literally croak. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament of crying like a raven. It's this croak, this kind of loud cry for vengeance. So ravens would, would typically a sign of, of vengeance and they would cry out. And so their cry was the cry for vengeance. And so we see this, this kind of vivid imagery of the saints who've been slain crying out for vengeance. And, and look at how God answers them. He answers them in verse 11 by giving them a white robe. And then they're told something. They're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. The reason for their waiting was that the number had not yet been completed, that was not yet complete. And what he's saying is all these things, all these four horsemen are, are still ravaging the earth. So we, the first question we have is, when, when are these things going to happen? Well, we can look around and see these things already are happening. These, these things began to happen in the first century. These wars and civil wars and famine and unrest and bloodshed and pestilence and all the things that result. They began to happen in the first century. They continue to happen. And they're going to happen until when? Until, until the full number is completed. Until those still alive that God's ordained to give their lives for the gospel witness are fulfilled. And in that, we're supposed to see that his, he's sovereign even over the martyrdom of his people. But the implication is that once the designated number is fulfilled, then God's going to carry out his final justice, his final vengeance. And so the first four, they're kind of already taking place. The verse five, we already have had martyrs and we'll continue to have martyrs. And we just saw that a couple weeks ago and last week as well when Christians were martyred as they worship God, as they were gathering together on Easter Sunday. So these things are happening even now. Matthew 24, you can look down your Bibles. Look, oh, I think we have an overhead for you, actually. Matthew 24, in verse 3, going back to the context that John is kind of unpacking. He explains when all these things were going to happen from the very beginning. And so in Matthew 24, it helps inform our text. In verse 3, it says, Jesus is sitting on Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, when are these things going to happen? And look in verse 4, he says, See that no one leads you astray, for many are going to come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear, so he tells them, and that day you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. These horsemen... See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. When you see these horsemen coming, when you see death and destruction riding through, galloping through, when you see wars galloping through, when you see civil wars coming through, when you see pestilence and plagues and all these things, don't be dismayed, don't be upset, don't be afraid. 
He says, look in verse 6, see that you're not alarmed. He says, for this must take place. These things will happen in our time. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. He says, for nation will rise against nation. Oh, that's, that's, civil, that's, that's wars and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. You see, these are some of the very things that we're seeing in this passage. He says, all these are but the beginning of birth pangs. So we have a clue there. They're beginning of birth pangs. And when Jesus was ascended to the Father, that's when the birth pangs began. But yet, it's not been fully delivered yet. The baby's not born. But they're going to happen now. And so these four horsemen, they're active today. And you can see they've already been unleashed back just in the last century alone. In World War I, I think it was something close to 17 million people died in that war. In World War II, somewhere close to 60 million people total. About 3% of the world's population died in World War II. And then that's not counting the over 50 million that Stalin probably put to death of his own people. Wars and civil wars. Since World War II, it's estimated that another 51 million people have been killed through war. If you look at all the unrest in our country and slangs and murder, there's bloodshed, lack of peace. You think, I thought we were getting better in this country. I thought we were even becoming you know, more united. But honestly, it feels like we're there's no peace and we're more divided than ever and we shouldn't be surprised with those things. It's happening right now. What about that third rider, famine? You know, that's not the experience of most people in the United States and that's, that's good. But it's an experience of some, even in the United States, people don't have enough to eat. But today it's estimated that somewhere over 805 million people don't have enough to eat every day. That's today. 805 million have, don't have enough to eat Roughly two-thirds of Asia does not have proper nutrition. You know, that's kind of shocking for us as we think about the privilege that we have. Our experience, though, is not normative for the rest of the world. And this, this passage is written for all Christians everywhere, right? One in four in Africa struggle with malnutrition and not enough food. Seventy million people alone died of famine in the last century. You know, this, this earth is not a, 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 a peaceful place. It's not a place where, where, you know, everything's getting better. There's wars. There's rumors of wars. They are famine. It's not safe. In a lot of this earth, their day-to-day existence, they experience these four horsemen. And one day we might experience these four horsemen. We have in the past. We might still in the future. We're experiencing birth pangs. And we shouldn't assume that we're going to remain as we are. And so one of the the takeaways for us personally is to say, wait a minute, these things are actually normative and they shouldn't be surprising. So really that brings us to the other point of why. Why does God give us this passage? Why does God give us this passage? We've seen what this passage says. It talks about these, these judgments of God that are carried out on the earth. And we see that these things are happening in between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And then all of them finally will come about once all of the martyrs have been gathered. Then the end will come. But really, let's not miss the point like the disciples so often did, like we so often do. And think that the point is really, okay, 
I've got to figure all these details out. I've got to figure all the dates out. When, when is exactly going to happen, God? No, the point is to see why God shows us to his people. The point's for us to look at this passage and say, okay, God, why are you showing us these things? When God reveals things to us in the book of Revelation, it's to reveal something for us to apply. I think the first thing we see is that we should... So she, she doesn't know what I mean. We should see that things will not be easy, and we shouldn't expect them to be easy either. You know, so often in our experience, we expect there to be no hardship as God's people, and yet we need to see that that should not be our expectation. Now, that's not our hope, it's not our prayer, but we should not be surprised, and we should expect that there will be wars, and rumors of wars, and civil war, and pestilence, and famine, and death, and martyrdom. And actually, God's ordained that. And we shouldn't expect things to be easy in this life, and they should not also, we shouldn't translate that to think that somehow God's displeased with us as his people when they happen around us. And we shouldn't be afraid when we see those things happening. If you are tempted to fear, when you look at the state of things and and Christians are not being more accepted today, they're actually being less accepted, and the authority of God's word is not not upheld any longer, and people are saying, not, no longer trying to prove their case from God's word. They're saying, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. And if you're freaked out or worried about those things, this passage is meant to help you. Hey, we should expect things won't be easy. Things aren't getting better. We should also have the expectation like they did in that day. You know what? Let's not rely on this world's powers. Let's not rely on the Roman government. Let's not rely on, on the political system to be stabilized because he says that all these things are going to take place. But we need to see that in and all, through all these things, why does he show us these things? Well, so we don't have unrealistic expectations, so we don't misread these things that are happening, and we don't think that somehow God is not ruling over them. Did you, did you notice something? Look back in verse 2 for a second. Look down your Bibles. Look back in verse 2. I want you to notice what that rider's wearing. He's wearing a crown, but did he put that on his own head? You can answer that question out loud. Go ahead. Did, he, did he put that crown on his own head in verse 2? No. He's given a crown. This authority is delegated to him by God. He's, he's carrying out with this authority that's delegated. He's conquering. Yes, there will be conquerors. But even then... Their, their authority has been delegated by God. He's limiting. And look down at verse 3. Look at this second writer. It says something there. He's permitted. He's permitted. You know, if you go to the DMV, you have to get a permit, permission to drive, right? You have to get a permit. You've got to get tags. You have to get permission. You have to get a permit to be able to legally operate a vehicle. This rider has to get permits from God. He's permitted. He's permitted, meaning God's the one in authority. The lamb is the one in authority. When these things happen, do not let your confidence be shaken. Ultimately, they're not in control. The lamb is. That's what we're meant to see. And then look in verse 7. You think, wait a minute, what about death and hell? Look down in verse 7 in your Bibles. Look down in your Bibles. What does it say? And they were what? You can say it out loud. They were what? In verse 7, and they were given authority. 
So all these culmination of all these horses together, they're given authority, but they are given. It's a delegated. There is no authority that is greater than the authority of the Lamb. Do not be shaken. Don't be dismayed. Don't be worried when all these things happen. There's one who's in authority over all of these horsemen. And even in death and Hades, and sword and famine and plague and pestilence, Judgment is constrained by the Lamb. The judgment is constrained by the Lamb. The churches that originally heard these verses, they would have been a little concerned by seeing all the things that were going to happen, but they really would have been comforted. They would have been comforted when they saw, you know what, wait a minute, we're not surprised when these things happening, when these things happen, and you know what, these things are going to grow increasingly terrible, we need to expect these things. You know what, we can be comforted knowing that the, that the Lamb is holding these things. He constrains evil. And he's bringing things to their end. Any of these judgments and the wrath of God that come between the ascension of Jesus and in his return are all under the Lamb's purview. They're given, they're permitted, they're constrained, they're delegated. What do we see? We see the Lamb as our hope. He's the one over all the world events. We shouldn't be concerned and think, oh God, what's happening? He knows what's happening. He's breaking open the seals. We shouldn't be shaken when we face opposition. Maybe when you read about Christians being bombed and martyred. Kind of things being done by the Roman Empire that they would have been seeing of Christians being given over to lions and wild beasts. He's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by these things. If society collapses, our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in society. Our hope is not that Christians are accepted. Our hope is in the Lamb. You know, we, we, we might have to endure terrible circumstances, but we should not be afraid as if our hope is in the law, in order, or government control. Our confidence is the Lamb of God. He's carrying out God's plans. That's, that's one of the effects. That's what we're meant to see. The Lamb of God. He's holding the skull firmly. He's cracking open the seals. He's the one delegating to the angels who delegate to these horsemen. And we can be sure that even if we die, the martyrs here, even if we die, where are they? They are under the altar. They are under a place of protection. They are under God's authority. They are under God's control. And where are they? They are with God. And then I love... That even if we die like the martyrs, we'll be given robes of righteousness and kept safe to the end. He's going to bring all things to completion to the end. We don't have to be terrified. The sixth seal that we see, it reveals this terrible shaking, this earthquake that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. In, Matthew, in, in verses 12 to 17, we see really the, the beginning of the end. And those things have not yet taken place. And they will take place in the end. After all of these four horsemen are allowed to run rampant, Within God's constraints, it says the, the sun will be blackened like sackcloth. The moon will be like blood. The stars will fall to the earth. The fig tree, like a fig tree, sheds its winter fruit. I have a, a plum tree out in my front yard, and I was really excited. This is the very first year that it began to bear fruit. Yeah, I planted it three years ago. It takes three years to bear fruit. I was really excited. There was about 200 of these little teeny little plums, little teeny things, just begun to bear fruit, started to be all over the tree. And we had a windstorm like a week or two ago. So I went out last week, and all the plums are on the ground. 
maybe there's 20 or 30 or whatever up in the tree, but most of them are out because this wind came along and shook them all off. And this imagery is saying it's like that in the end. So, you know, this is not yet coming. At the very end of things, God is going to unmake what he made. He's going to shake everything. He's going to unmake. This is the unmaking that we're seeing when he's going to bring judgment on the whole cosmos. And the sky is going to vanish up like a scroll, roll up like a scroll, and every mountain is going to be removed, and every island is going to be removed. I can imagine we're going to go out west this summer when I go on sabbatical, and I can imagine when we get to see the Rockies, and you look up and you see how tall they are, and majestic and powerful, and imagine those being removed. The Himalayas removed. Or the Hawaiian Islands, or whatever islands there are, all being removed at the end. This is, this is unmaking. This is the lowering of even the creation. But it's not the end still. Because look in verse 15. He says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains. What are we seeing here? Why, why are we seeing this? We're seeing this because we're meant to see that wealth and power are no protection. Wealth and power, they're no protection. If your goal is to be a king, to be a great one, to be a general, to be rich and powerful, if your goal is those things, he's saying this is, that's futile, it's worthless. You know why? Because in the end, that will be no protection, that will be no help, that will be no hope. Your riches won't make a difference, your power won't make a difference, your prestige won't make a difference, your position won't make a difference. There's no protection. Every earthly ruler is stripped of their dignity and power and authority. And they hide. They hide. Their power can't keep them safe. They hide. Their wealth can't keep them safe. They hide. Fear is the great leveler. They hide along with slaves and freemen. The generals, the ones who led the biggest armies in the Roman Empire at the time, the kings, the conquerors, all those people, it won't matter. Why? Because that's not our hope. And we're not meant to put hope in those things. That's why we're seeing this passage. Because you're going to be tempted to think, if you are a Christian living in the first century, and there is, you're being persecuted, you're going to be tempted to think, you know what, the way out is maybe if Christians can come in power. Maybe if we can elect or get the right officials in place, then that's our hope. Or you know what, maybe if we win the first century lottery, if they had such a thing, that that will be deliverance from suffering and hope, and that will be confidence and hope. Or maybe if we get enough positions and prestige, then, then that's our hope. And he says, no, you're not meant to hope in those things. This is written so that you would see that it's futile to hope in those things. They hide alongside everybody else. Terror is the great equalizer. The playing field is level. The most powerful and wealthy are reduced to hiding. And if you try to avoid judgment on your own, you cannot... That's what this is telling us. Don't, don't look to avoid judgment on your own. You can't. You cannot deliver yourself from judgment. No matter how powerful and rich and wealthy you are, you can't hide yourself from the four horsemen. You can't hide yourself from the sixth seal that's going to be opened. You, you, you're not allowed, you, you, can't, you can't avoid judgment on your own. And no matter how powerful or rich you are, he looked in verse 16, it says, the mountains, or they call out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. They can't deliver themselves, so they pray to the earth to fall on them. Hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
It will become so bad that everyone will want to hide and everyone will be covered and no one will be able to cover themselves and keep themselves, to hide themselves from the wrath of God. You know, as believers, we pray and often we close these times by, by praying the prayer that God's face might shine upon us. They want to hide. Apart from Christ, His face is terrible. And that's what we're meant to see. And they call it out to be delivered from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, if you think about a lamb, lambs are not normally scary. This is a scary lamb. This is an angry lamb. This is a lamb who carries out the worst of judgment. But it's righteous judgment. It's righteous judgment against all who raise themselves up against the name of God and who oppress God's people. So what do we see? We see all these things happening, but we do not need to be afraid. Look down your Bibles at how the vision ends. Look in verse 17. They explain why they want to be hidden from the face of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. They say, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? Can you stand? Can you withstand God's judgment? Can you withstand His wrath? That's, that's meant to provoke all of us. All the original hearers were meant to say, Hey, who can stand? But they weren't meant to despair because there are people standing. In this passage, there are people standing. There are people there who are standing, who are speaking before the throne of God. Did you get that? Look, there, there's, there's martyrs crying out to God. And you know, you know how they're there? You know how they're standing? They're given robes. I, I love the imagery there. They're given his white robes. They're given his robes of victory. Their trust is in the victory of the Lamb. They're standing before the throne making their plea before God. Why? Because they have the victory of the Lamb that's been given to them. Because they have the righteousness of God given to them in Christ Jesus. So that who can stand is meant to provoke you if you are not standing in the righteousness of Christ and His victory that He has won for you by conquering your sin, by giving you a worth and a righteousness that's not your own, then you cannot stand. Oh, but you can stand if you put your hope in the righteousness of the victory of Jesus, and you're given his white robe of victory, his white robe of righteousness. I want you to flip over in your Bible just for a second. We're going to look at this next week as well, but look in Revelation 7, 9. I don't know if we have this up on the slide or not. Yeah, we do. Revelation 7, 9. He says, and after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Now look at what they're doing. They're standing. Unbelievers say, who can stand? As a believer, when you read this passage, you can see they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Why? They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's stand in His righteousness. Let's stand in His victory. Let's find that we can hide ourselves in Him. We can't hide ourselves, but He says that He'll hide us in Him. He'll cover us with His wings. He'll, he'll hide us in Himself. He is, he is our hope that all of our nastiness, all of our sin is hidden in Him, in Him alone. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And we can stand in confidence because of the Lamb. Amen? Well, let's